Several years ago, a couple of guys broke into a big department store in a large city. They successfully entered the store, stayed long enough to do what they wanted to do, and then they left unnoticed. The unusual thing about them coming into this store is that they didn't take anything. Absolutely nothing. There was no merchandise that was stolen while these guys were there. But what they did do was crazy. Instead of stealing everything, anything, what they did was that they changed every single label or price tag in the whole store. They just moved them all around. So a camera that was on sale for £300 suddenly had a price tag of £6.50 and, and a, uh, 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 a sort of a, uh, a something in the food there, a packet of, you know, uh, Dunkin' Donuts, suddenly had £300 on it. And they changed absolutely everything in the whole shop. They just went through the whole of all the departments, changed all the labels they could, and then they left. Now that's pretty unusual. This is true. This actually happened. This is not made up. That's not the only thing that was unusual because when the shop opened the next day, nobody noticed for four hours what had happened. People suddenly went in there and thought, this is a bargain. And so they bought it. But other people bought those things that were well overpriced and they still thought, this must be really special. So they went and they paid for it. Nobody noticed. None of the checkout people noticed. None of the employees in the store noticed for four hours that something was wrong. I don't quite know what they did when they found out, mind you. <laughs> they had to close the shop down and, and reorder everything. I'm not sure. But you know, the thing is, just as that everything got messed up in that shop, so the same thing has happened in our world, hasn't it? It's like somebody has come into our world and put values on things that are not that valuable. And has, and has cheapened things that are worth everything. I saw in the, in the, in the press this morning, Vince Cable was having another pop at the banker's salaries. Did you see that? And he said... He, he, he went and chatted to a couple of these uh, leading bankers and he said like, how can you justify your like one million pound bonus? Like nobody is worth that. How can you justify it? And the guy says, my colleagues get paid it so why shouldn't I? That was their justification. We put values on things that are not necessarily what they should be, but our world is messed up like that. Is somebody who kicks a football around worth 300,000 a week when somebody who works in a hospital or somewhere else saving lives or teaches a new generation only worth X amount? Our world is messed up. And today in our reading from God's Word, we come face to face with reality of really what the important things are. Turn in your Bibles to Luke, Luke chapter 23. 
Last week, as we began this series of Jesus' words from the cross, we remember he spoke to the whole world. Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. And that was a, a cry that was uttered and offered for everyone who might believe. But today, on his second word from the cross, Jesus narrows it right down to an individual. And it reminds us that God only, not only sees the, the global picture of a suffering world, but he also sees us as individuals too. The amazing thing about Jesus, wasn't it, was that he was equally at home talking to thousands of people as he was going to the home of one individual or meeting one person and just dealing with them. And even though all these crowds were so often around, he would just focus on that individual and give them the attention that they needed. And that's what we see with Jesus right now on the cross. Luke 23, and we'll begin at verse 36. But let's pray first. Lord, as we read your word again today, as we look into those deep, deep words of Jesus from the cross, we ask that you would again speak to us. Lord, we open our hearts and our minds to you, for we want to hear from you directly. Speak to us through your word and via your Holy Spirit, for we ask this in the name of Christ. Amen. So Jesus is there hanging on the cross. He said, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. I'll begin at verse 35 as we pick it up from where we left off last week. The people stood watching and the rulers even sneered at him. They said, he saved others. Let him save himself if he is Christ of God, the chosen one. The soldiers came up and mocked him. They offered him wine vinegar and said, if you're the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was a written notice above him which read, this is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who hung there hold insults at him. Aren't you the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other criminal rebuked him. Don't you fear God, he said, since you're under the same sentence? We are punished justly, for we are getting what our deeds deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Jesus answered him, I tell you the truth, today you will be with me in paradise. This passage is a, an amazing reflection on Isaiah 53. If you turn back in your Bibles, if you can find it quickly, Isaiah 53, that amazing passage about the suffering servant. And if you look in verse 12, of Isaiah 53. It gives this uh, prediction, this prophecy. Therefore I will give him a portion among the great and he, will, and he will divide the spoils with the strong because he poured out his life unto death and was numbered with the transgressors for he bore the sins of many and made intercession for the transgressors. That's what this guy asks of him. He said, Jesus, make intercession for me, isn't it? Remember me when you come into... He's praying. Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. 
Just as it says would happen in Isaiah 53. But what does it mean when Jesus says, I tell you the truth, today you will be with me in paradise. Well, paradise is quite an unusual word in the Bible. It's not very often used. It's used in 2 Corinthians 12, 3 and 4 and Revelation 2, 7. But really, it's a, it's a Persian word that means a walled garden. So he's really saying, today you're going to be with me in my walled garden. But it's, it's more than that. Paradise was the place, it was a, a kind of analogy of the king's garden. And he was really saying, today you're going to have access to the garden where the king is. In Persian culture, they used to, if you were highly favoured, you would be given a kind of a companionship, if you like, of the garden it was called. It was a, a royal privilege, which meant that you could come into the king's garden and just wander around. It's a bit like a National Trust membership card, right? You get it and you can go in. If you can't, you get paid, you know, have to pay exorbitant amounts to go in, don't you? But if you've got the card, you can just show the card and in you go. And it's a little bit like that, that, that you have access, it's like the Queen giving these garden parties, right? You've got access to go, you, you're there by right. And they used to give these things out to people that were highly favoured for all sorts of reasons. And then you were allowed to be, if you like, not only in the royal garden, but in the company of the royalty. And so Jesus is saying, today you're going to be walking with me in my garden. You're going to have access. I'm going to give you the pass that will get you in to walk with me. And in that garden, you can then talk with the king. You can, you can sit there and listen to the conversations that are going on in the royal courts and so on. It's like the picture you see in Eden, isn't it? Of them walking in the cool of the night with the Lord. And he says, today you're going to be like that. You're going to be with me in paradise. What a beautiful picture. It's more than just saying, you're going to have eternal life. It's saying, you're going to be a companion of mine today. That's what it means, but what really is that then saying to us? This whole account, what does it really say to us today? Well, firstly, I think it says to us that salvation is really very simple. Here you have a guy on the cross at the end of his life, and he receives that salvation on that day. Hadn't been a massive disciple of Jesus, had he? Don't know anything about him particularly, except that he was a robber, as it says in Matthew's Gospel. So he was hardly following Jesus at the moment. And yet he received salvation that very moment, just with that brief conversation with Jesus as the two of them are dying. Why? Well, because first of all he realises his own need. He tells his friends, just shut up, you don't know what you're talking about. And then he says to him, he turns to Jesus and he says, you've done nothing wrong, remember me when you come into your kingdom. He realises his own need, that he can't do anything, that, that his salvation is there on the line, but that he can do nothing himself. He recognises his own need for someone to come and help him, and so he reaches out to Jesus, and says, Jesus, I need help. 
He realises his own helplessness. Not just his need, but his helplessness in answering it. He realises that he can't get into that walled garden, into paradise, into eternal life with God on his own. But that through Christ, he can get there. So he says, Jesus help me. I can't do it on my own, but you can do it for me. And that's the third thing, he believes that Jesus can do it. You wouldn't say, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom, unless you understood that Jesus, who he is, and what he can accomplish. And so this man realised, however sinful he is, he realised who Jesus really is. It's quite ironic, isn't it? You've got the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the religious leaders and everybody else. All the spiritual people, all the very nice people, the ones that cut the, uh, cut the crust off their salmon sandwiches. Those kind of people didn't recognise who Jesus is. And he got this robber right at the end of the life who recognises Jesus. It's really ironic. It's really sad too. That the religious people get so caught up in the religion that they lose sight of the Messiah and who he really is. And yet, this guy, when everything is stripped away, instead of throwing curses and being angry, this guy believes. He recognises his own need. He realises his own helplessness. He believes that Jesus can save. And then he reaches out to Jesus. He talks to him, he prays, Jesus, remember me. Salvation is that simple. That's all it takes. So it doesn't matter where we are, it doesn't matter the situation we find ourselves in, we just need to recognise who Jesus is and reach out to him. The second thing this passage shows us is that it doesn't matter how bad you think you are. The worst of people can be accepted in the kingdom of God. And the best of people can miss that opportunity. This guy says that he's been crucified there and he deserves it. Now the only people they would allow to crucify are slaves and pirates and enemies of the state. No Roman citizen could ever be crucified. As I said in Matthew 27, 38, it says that they were two robbers. So they were probably slaves or pirates that had stolen stuff off other people, got caught. And to make an example of them, the Romans used to crucify them. It's kind of trying to dissuade anybody else from doing the same kind of thing. But it shows us that the worst of people. People that have broken into your house and stolen loads of stuff and you want to just throw the book at them. People that kind of think, God can't save me, I've done too many things wrong. Those are the people that can receive salvation. Jesus said, I've not come for those that don't need it. I've come for the sick and the lost. And some people come to me and they say to me, you know, well, God could never forgive me. I've done too many things. How could God ever forgive me for what I've done? And the amazing thing about Jesus' words from the cross 
is that it reminds us of however low we think we, we get to. However far away from God we think we've drifted. That God still accepts us and welcomes us home. It's like the prodigal, isn't it? Throws everything away. Does everything to walk away from what he knew the Father would want. But then if he turns back and asks for forgiveness and recognizes his need, God welcomes us back with open arms. The third thing it reminds us of is that salvation doesn't depend on anything we do either. How much has this guy done for the kingdom of God? Nothing. He's there because he's stolen, he's there because he's lived a selfish life, he's looked after himself, he's just tried to gain by ripping off other people. And yet the kingdom is open to him that very evening. What we do makes no difference on salvation. You can be a minister, you can, you can be a missionary, you can be church secretary, treasurer, whatever you like. You can serve in the church your whole life. But if you don't know Jesus Christ, I mean none of that will, will help you in salvation. Salvation is not dependent on what we do. It's dependent on other things that we'll come to in a minute. That criminal had done nothing of benefit for the kingdom of God. And yet Jesus said tonight you're going to be walking with me in my garden. Because of that one brief encounter. Now we do things because it comes out of our relationship with God. It, we do things because of a thanksgiving towards what God has done for us. And we have to be careful it is that way round and not the other way round. You cannot earn salvation. You cannot be good enough to get into the kingdom of God. As I said, the Pharisees and the Sadducees were pretty good people. They just didn't have a relationship with Jesus Christ. And we have to be careful. I hear so often from us, well they're very good people. Well they may well be. That's fantastic. I'm glad that they are. But our salvation, our, our being able to walk with God in paradise doesn't depend on how good or how bad we are. It depends on whether we have that, recognize our need and that we reach out to him and say, God, doesn't matter how good I am, I still need you. Because I can never be good enough. And then from that relationship, we minister, we work for his glory. Not the other way around. And that's the difference between duty and ministry. Sometimes in church we do things out of duty. I do things out of duty because I have to do them. I do things out of ministry because I want to do them. I want to serve God and therefore I do certain things. It's like when you're growing up and your parents say to you, there's a list of chores that you've got to do. Now, do you do those chores because you love doing them? No. You do them because you're told you have to do them. Right? You need to make your bed every day, your room's got to be tidy, 
All you, all you dirty laundry is not to be on the floor, it's to be in the laundry basket that my parents provided for me. Don't know how... When you look back, you wonder how complicated it really was. But it just seemed to be complicated at the time to lift up those socks from off the floor and to place them in the basket. But it was a, it was a mission, wasn't it, to do that. But you did it out of duty. Why? Because you knew the consequences for not doing it were probably worse than the hassle of doing it. Because your parents made the consequences worse than the hassle of doing it. You do it later in life. Not out of duty, but you do it because you love having a clean home. You do it because you love doing it, in that sense. Some things. You do it because it just naturally comes out of you and you see things and you just naturally do them. Nobody asks you. You just see that and you go, oh, I'll pick that up, put it in there. And it's just a natural reaction later in life. And it's like that in our relationship with Christ. We see things, we see opportunities to share our faith, opportunities to show the love of God and we just do them, not because I'm on a rotor to do it. Nothing against rotors. But you, you know what I'm trying to say? Not because I have to, but because I want to. It's like in a relationship with anybody. You don't buy flowers every Wednesday because you have to buy flowers on a Wednesday. Let's rotor in. David, when you get married, Every Wednesday I want flowers, my wife said. She never said this, but you know, you can imagine it. And so every Wednesday I have to go down the shop and buy flowers for her. Now there's no heart in that, there's no relationship in that, I'm just doing it for an easy life. Because otherwise, Thursday I'm going to be a day of nagging. Where's my flowers, you know? But you don't, you buy flowers for someone, why? Because it just comes naturally out of you and you look at them and you go, you know what, I want to show love to this person. Let me just go buy her flowers because I know it will just please her and cheer her up. And it will look great in the house. That's the difference. And there on the cross we see that reality. And it reminds us that no amount of works that we do can ever lead us into a relationship with Jesus. The relationship always has to come first. But it speaks so clearly to us that that relationship is the key thing. Salvation is dependent. It's dependent on repentance, on turning around, on trust in a relationship. It's the only thing that robber had, wasn't it? Was his relationship at that moment with Jesus. He was brought close to him by the fact he was nailed to a cross next to Jesus. And he was close enough to Jesus at that moment. And he said, you know what? I'm here because I deserve to be here. You don't. Remember me. In other words, just help me. Help me, Lord. When you, when you come into your kingdom, when you rise again, when you are with, with the Father in heaven, remember me. It's all I'm asking. Salvation is, due, is, is solely dependent on that turning from him and trusting in what Jesus has already done for us. That's grace. And the amazing thing is what he said. I tell you the truth. Today, you will be with me 
That surely is the aim of everything. In Revelation 21 verse 3, it says the same thing. I will be your God. You will be my people. Emmanuel, Matthew 1.23 means God with us. In the beginning was the Word. The Word came. And we didn't recognize it. But to those who believed, gave the right to become children of God. John 1. And that's the message that we have to bring. You know, we live in a messed up world. Like that department store. Where all the values, it seems to me, have been switched all over the place. And people are still going around, investing in what they think are worthy things. What we have is the message of what's the most precious. Not what's the most expensive in the sense of what humans label it as. But what is the most precious of all. And our role, Jesus says, is to go and help people realise that. Help people to see like that robber saw on the cross. What is really worth investing in and what is not. God has given to you and to me the most precious gift of all. That's why we celebrate with the bread and the wine every single week. Why we remember grace, God's riches at Christ's expense. That Jesus came to set you and me free. And that is the message that we need to offer to everybody else. Some will be like that other robber on the cross and just throw insult. Some will be like the Pharisees and the Sadducees and saying, we prefer our religion, thank you very much. We prefer our structures and the way we do things. We don't need anybody to tell us of our real needs. But some like the centurion and the robber, will turn and say, that's exactly what I need. Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he will say to them, I tell you the truth, today you will be with me. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this word from the cross. Again, a word that, that caused you pain and anguish as you said it. But that even at the very end of your life, your earthly life here, you were there welcoming another brother into our family. And you have challenged us with that same simple message. The world has labels for everything. The world thinks some things are more important than other things. But you say, this is what is most important of all. To tell people that you love them, that you died for them, and that if they want to, they can have a relationship with you now and for all eternity. You've given us that message. Help us to share it with everyone that we meet to offer it to them for the harvest is plentiful and you've already worked in some people's hearts 
ready just to receive that message because there's that void inside them and they know that's what they need right now give us courage and strength as we go out from this place to share that message with others for we ask this in the name of Christ Amen